Welcome to the New Testament Review. Where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. I'm Laura Robinson. And we hold PhDs in New Testament from Duke University. Today we're reviewing Matthew, Gender, and Reading by Janice Capel Anderson. This was originally published in 1983 in the book The Bible and Feminist Hermeneutics, edited by Marianne Tolbert. And it has since been reprinted in A Feminist Companion to Matthew, edited by Amy Jill Levine. These are both important volumes, influential volumes for feminist critical interpretations of the Bible and of the Gospel of Matthew in particular. We would commend both of these volumes to you as representing some really outstanding, excellent scholarship. This probably won't be the last time we dip into them. And and I specifically, a big part of why we did this is because we wanted to highlight the Feminist Companion series from Bloomsbury. This is a series that is edited by Amy Jill Levine. I still can't believe we haven't gotten to an Amy Jill Levine show yet. She appears frequently in the discussions of secondary literature, but we haven't actually dedicated an episode to her. So we'll get there. Yeah. So in this essay, Anderson is drawing parallels between the work she sees being done in feminist literary criticism and the work that has been done and ought to be done in feminist critical biblical scholarship. Specifically, she argues that literary criticism highlights androcentrism in texts, seeks to recover positive images of women, and asks questions about women's concerns and concerns about women in texts, and of particular importance for this essay, inquires into the symbolic significance of gender for texts. Working on gender criticism and feminist criticism from the ancient world is a big job. Uh, You know, these come from overwhelmingly androcentric and patriarchal cultures, and there are very few confirmed texts from the pre-modern world uh, that are actually from a female author. So our job as readers is basically to go back into these texts that overwhelmingly do come from these androcentric communities and cultures and from these very patriarchal societies and look at the role of the women in the text, the way in which they may be positively portrayed and in their in their original contexts. Laura and I have actually done a podcast episode on the very first known female author from early Christianity on Proba's Kento. But you won't find that in the feed of our podcast because it was a guest episode we did on Mark Goodacre's NT Pod. So you can go find that episode, this guest episode we did. It was called Juvencus to Jesus Christ Superstar, um, a history of adaptations of Jesus narratives. But to Laura's point, there are very few, and within the confines of the biblical canon, maybe, probably no texts written by women. In that spirit, uh, the project that Anderson leads us through is identifying the symbolic significance of women in the text, what role they play as gendered beings in Matthew, and what that says about the symbolic world of Matthew and gender. And the majority of our article is dedicated to identifying the symbolic significance of gender in the Gospel of Matthew. She is not arguing that Matthew is a text specifically and intentionally about gender, gender roles, sexuality. It's, it's not. In fact, she says that gender isn't even a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew, as it is, for instance, perhaps in the Acts of Paul and Thecla or the uh, Martyr Acts of Perpetua and Felicity. Nevertheless, in the Gospel of Matthew, I think Anderson makes a compelling argument that gender does play some very specific symbolic purposes throughout the Gospel. And she argues that Matthew is thoroughgoingly androcentric in this respect. 
that femininity is consistently marked, to borrow the language of the second sex. Masculinity is default, femininity is marked, and what it represents for this text, well, there's a whole host of things we'll walk through together. We're not doing like a historical reconstruction of how women were treated at the time that Matthew was writing or the role of women in history. We're looking at specifically the role of women in this text. And when we look at Matthew, you can actually see pretty clearly that it is a very patriarchal text. It's a very androcentric text that prioritizes and centers male experiences and male interests over against women. And where she starts is the genealogy, that the genealogy highlights the story of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus, and specifically highlights this in very male terms. Who Jesus is, is identified in male titles, that he's the son of, son of Abraham, son of David, son, you know, that, that, the, the son of begotten language. The genealogy really centers male ancestors. There are, of course, these five female ancestors in the text, but overwhelmingly it's men. And, of course, the process of reproduction and lineage is framed in these very male-centered ways of, you know, this man begot this man and so on and so forth, right? This is continued through the nativity. Unlike Luke, Matthew's birth narrative very much centers Joseph's perspective and Joseph's concerns, how he finds out about the birth and specifically his own concern about the legitimacy of Jesus and the paternity of Jesus. And then throughout the ministry of Jesus, she shows how just the way scenes are described and the way Jesus, you know, addresses human people in general, assumes masculinity as the default human experience. So for instance, when it gives crowd numbers, it says there were 4,000 people there and many women and children. Uh, and when, it, when Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, anyone or whoever or all people who look at a woman with lust or covet their neighbor's wife. So the general human addressed by Jesus is implicitly male. And when women show up, they are flagged as such, right? They are marked as feminine, as women, as opposed to the basic androcentric male-centered framing of the whole narrative. If you want to learn more about the genealogy in Matthew's gospel, and specifically this surprising function where there are five women in it, you can find that in episode 15, our Raymond Brown Birth of the Messiah episode, or one of the several that we have done. That's a great place to look if you want to learn more about that and theories about why those women are particularly named, especially over against other women who could be cited in Jesus' genealogy. Anderson herself actually cites that study by Raymond Brown as a list of interpretive options. And whatever they're doing, it's worth noting that if highlighting the importance of women was what this was for, then we would expect more than just five out of the entire genealogy. We would expect them to be named as opposed to the wife of Uriah, which is how Bathsheba is named. Bathsheba is listed as the uh, wife of Uriah, not as under, under her own name. Right. Yeah. Moreover, if the point is to draw parallels with Mary, we would then expect the experience, the actions, the agency of Mary to at least, you know, appear in the text, as opposed to what we get, which is a narrative entirely driven by Joseph. So of all the possibilities of why there are women in Matthew's genealogy, why there's this little gasp of female representation at the beginning of the text, a lot of the explanations that people have cited to sort of introduce this idea that Matthew is in fact not androcentric or not patriarchal, a lot of them actually don't make sense with what immediately follows after that genealogy. Yep. 
what we do have in Matthew is a number of women who do appear throughout the text. Not a lot of them have names in Matthew. A lot of the women are not named and sort of just appear and disappear quickly in the story. And overwhelmingly, they seem to be marginalized, right? This is what what Anderson calls this, is that being female is a marginalized identity in the Gospel of Matthew. It has this very specific status in the text as symbolizing somebody who does not have power or may have some kind of gap or need in some case. So one example she uses of this is is the Canaanite woman. This is a story that is first told in Mark. In Mark, it's known as the Syrophoenician woman woman who is a Gentile, comes to Jesus and asks uh, him to exercise her daughter, cast a demon out. And Jesus says no, or wait, depending on how you read it. First, let the children eat all they want, the Israelites, because it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In Matthew, instead of the wait, it is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Do not take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. And the woman gives this reply, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And as a result, Jesus casts the demon out, but as a distance does not go with her, but casts the demon out at a distance because of this response of even the dogs eat under the table, right? In this case, the Canaanite woman is marginalized for obviously for being a Canaanite in this context, for being a Gentile, for being someone who is not first in line to receive the blessings of Jesus and the healing ministry of Jesus, and is also, of course, marginalized by virtue of being a woman, by virtue of being a mother who's not necessarily supposed to have uh, frontline access to Jesus the way some of the men in the story do. Right. Anderson says in these cases, femininity marks people as doubly marginalized. So the Canaanite woman is both Gentile and a woman. And in the second example, the woman with the flow of blood, you can go listen to our Canada Moss episode on this story specifically, but the woman in the flow of blood is marked as both a woman and as someone who is unwell, is unhealthy, has a flow of blood, is perhaps ritually impure. There's a whole sorts of debates on that. But the point is in both these cases, we have people who are marked by the femininity as being marginal. And this serves a couple functions in the Gospel of Matthew, according to Anderson. One is that their marginality serves to highlight their accomplishment as a foil to the male disciples, sometimes explicitly so. These are women who have great faith that's often contrasted with the little faith of the disciples who are supposed to be the sort of heroes. And so their being women highlights how impressive their faith is in order to show how unimpressive the men are, um, how badly the male disciples have messed up. Moving forward through the text, we have a few examples of women who are not necessarily coming to Jesus to ask for something, but still have this very marginalized status. One of them is the woman who does the anointing of Jesus before the Passion narrative. This is a story that we covered in our Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza story in the book In Memory of Her. We have this incident where a woman demonstrates awareness of Jesus' passion and the fact that it is coming quickly. Uh, And she does this by anointing Jesus. Again, she is not named. This is not a female-centric passage. She is not uh, remembered. And she's also not held up specifically as a disciple, right? There is this extreme non-competition between her and the disciples. The fact that she understands the passion does put her in contrast with the disciples, but she also can't really usurp them because she's not one of them, right? She is distinct and apart from them by virtue of being a woman. 
her femininity again shows how bad the disciples are, that, that even a woman can do better than them, is, is how Anderson reads these narratives. So she's, not, she's non-threatening, she's not going to take their position, but she sort of stands out as how poorly the disciples are comprehending Jesus, that even this woman has rightly understood where the narrative makes clear the disciples have not. And this plays out one more time with the story of the women at the cross, right? As in the other synoptic gospels, the disciples all flee when Jesus is arrested. Instead of being followed by his disciples, Jesus is followed by a few women who keep quite a distance and then are the ones who preside over the burial of Jesus and then, of course, return to go anoint the body on the morning of the resurrection of Easter morning. So these are women who, once again, um, are depicted as faithful. We can call this a positive image that they do follow behind Jesus, even as he is being crucified, and they do attempt to honor his body. And there is still this gulf of non-competition, right? They are not called disciples, even though they are like disciples. It seems that by virtue of being women, they are not disciples, even though they seem to be doing all the things a disciple does. And in this case, they're not only not called disciples, but the author makes an explicit distinction between the disciples and the women who are following and ministering to Jesus. They're marked as women as distinct from the category of disciples. And Anderson makes the interesting comparison here with Joseph of Arimathea, who's not among the twelve, whose job is to minister, who is himself called a disciple— in contrast to the women who do all the same things, but, you know, are women. What you're probably hearing is that there's a cluster of things around this that on we, we have positive portrayals of women in an androcentric text. These things go together, right? The women aren't bad. They're not examples of what women should not be like or like negative stereotypes of women. They're all doing things that are generally praiseworthy. You know, the worst thing that happens is Mary misunderstanding uh, the role of discipleship, which is about what the disciples are doing too, right? But like on the whole, these people are very faithful. It's just in the midst of this very androcentric text where their understanding is shown to sort of be surprising even, right? That they're even doing better than disciples, that the disciples should be doing so much better than this, or in which they are meaningfully excluded despite their very good work and loyal service to Jesus, that they don't have the same titles or positions that men do. That's the work Anderson sees femininity doing in part throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's it's sort of used to highlight how impressive an accomplishment is in spite of these people being marked as feminine. Yeah. That's the negative side. But this is complicated. And Anderson also wants to draw attention to the way the narrative of Matthew and the author of Matthew complicates that same thing. Anderson has this extended argument where she points out that the voice of Jesus and the voice of the narrator, the author, are very much collapsed throughout the gospel. And Jesus throughout the gospel is critical of hierarchies and is, and is, quote, exploding the boundaries of acceptable identification. That femininity as a marker of marginality also highlights God's universal love as it extends to women and presumably then should be practiced by the implied male reader. So, it's true that this still assumes the centrality of 
men's love as it extends to women and other marginal groups, but insofar as gender-critical readings are interested in concerns about women and the concerns of women, this does complicate the sort of simple patriarchal readings of this text as reinforcing hierarchies and patriarchy. A lot of feminist criticism of Matthew does not necessarily move in these directions. And the reason why we pick this is to introduce you guys to feminist criticism of Matthew and specifically this one text and some of the claims that she makes that I actually think are quite surprising. Uh, if you go to a panel at SBL on feminist criticism of Matthew, a lot of times the work will all be about reclaiming the positive role of women in the text and like insisting on the centrality of women. And I actually think Anderson has sort of taken the prompt in a really interesting direction in a way that a lot of people might not necessarily think of as feminist criticism. That feminist criticism is not necessarily highlighting the centrality of the women. It can also be highlighting the ways in which some possibly unintentional, possibly cultural, possibly unconscious sexism comes into the text. This essay is a great exposure to the way in which feminist criticism can work in biblical studies because there actually is more than one way to do this. And there's more than one way to take a feminist lens towards a biblical passage. And she nods towards this and points towards the work of scholars like Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza, our very second episode where the anti-hierarchical, liberative ethics of Jesus can really, when placed in a first century context, be understood as liberative with respect to women, even as they're anti-family, like we talked about in our Carolyn Oziek episode. So we picked this piece not to bash on Matthew, and Anderson is herself not bashing on Matthew, but as another part of the story of what feminist criticism looks like when brought to the Gospel of Matthew. I think assigning this or reading this alongside something like Fiorenza or Oziek can be really instructive and useful for, yes, there's a liberative message, while also there are patriarchal and uh, androcentric assumptions that are coming through um, in different places in the text. Maybe in the future we'll do another essay from this volume just to sort of let you see a different uh, take on this material. There's a lot more stuff within the Feminist Companion series we could do, but for now I think this is this is a great little first uh, first toe-in. Of course, you know, it's, we've done a lot of stuff on gender and women and even feminist criticism on the show before, but if you're getting started with this series, I think this is, this is a great place to start. All right. Well, thanks, Laura. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Ian. 